Take your Bibles this morning. Join me in John chapter 17, please. We are going through John's gospel account on Sunday mornings. We are currently in chapter 17 where we find our Lord praying shortly before His betrayal. For three weeks, we've been considering the opening of this prayer, and I'd like to return to verse 3 again this week. So if you'll look with me, please, in John chapter 17, let's read verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. As Thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. I have glorified Thee on the earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. We read in verse 3 one of the clearest definitions you will find on eternal life in the Bible. We see here that eternal life isn't defined as going to heaven. Eternal life isn't defined as never dying. Eternal life isn't defined as living forever. Now, all of that is true within the environment of eternal life. As born-again children of God, there is that part of us which will never die. There is a place of glory that we will reside with God for all eternity. And we understand all that, but eternal life here is clearly defined for us as a relationship. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, last week I highlighted how our plea for people to come to Christ for salvation isn't merely so they can go to heaven, but the plea for people to come to Christ is because Jesus died in our place on the cross and shed His blood so that you and I could be reconciled to God and have a relationship with Him. Without Christ, we have the sentence of the wrath of God abiding on us. Amen? We must understand the reason for this is because we are sinners without faith in God. The Bible says in John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So without faith in Christ, there is the sentence of the wrath of God abiding on us. And we cannot bypass this fact. We can't just ask people if they want to go to heaven when they die, but they must comprehend that they are first hell-deserving sinners. And my point was, if heaven is the emphasis of salvation, then we'll often de-emphasize our desperate lost condition in the eyes of a holy God. We also discussed how there's only one true God. I took the time to highlight last week how when people don't want to agree with God's Word and what it says about heaven and what it says about hell, that they are then forced to change Bible doctrine. And in the process, what they do is they end up inventing a God after their own liking. There are many false religions which unfortunately have now been grouped under the umbrella of Christianity who don't like what the Bible has to say about hell. So they change the Bible doctrine on hell. And in the process, they change God's character. And in essence, what they have done is they've said, I want a God that's like this. And they brought God down to what they wanted Him to be. Somebody once noted, 
In the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And ever since the fall of mankind, man has been trying to make God into their image. And that's true. There's only one true God. He's the only God which can give eternal life. And you have to decide who you are going to believe. The God of the false religions or the God of this Bible. Are you going to believe the God of the religions that have corrupted and watered down the Word of God? Or are you going to believe the God of this Bible? You have to make that decision. God never says, boy, I really hope mankind agrees with what I put in place. We don't find God doing that. But God says, I'm going to prove you. I'm going to see whether or not you'll keep my ways and walk therein or not. The Bible says in Leviticus 18.4, Ye shall do my judgments and keep my ordinances and walk therein. I am the Lord your God. God says, look, I'm not going to sit here and have a debate with you over whether or not you like what I've established, but I'll prove you to see whether or not you're going to walk in that way. Amen. God never suggests that His Word has to be modified as time went on. God never suggests in His Word that we need to conform it to the cultural norms of our day. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. It's not about us changing God's Word into our likeness, but it's about God's Word changing us into His likeness. Just let the Word of God say what it says. You don't have to apologize for it. You don't have to adjust it. Just let it say what it says. Amen. And don't ever apologize. Well, I better be careful. I'll end up preaching that instead of our message today. Amen, brother. We're in John 17, 3, and I want to get back to this all-important definition of what eternal life is. And if you can get a hold of this verse, I think it just might change your life. I know it changed my life in more ways than one, and I won't get into that. But this verse not only defines eternal life, but it defines for us what true Christianity is. And the good news is, if you don't like learning new definitions, the definitions for both are the same. Amen. To so many religious people, eternal life is a hope that at the end of this physical life, there's going to be this balance that God has where your good works will be weighed against your bad works. And the hope is that if it'll tip in my direction, God will smile upon me and allow me to have eternal life and enter into glory. That's how a lot of religious people think. One of the major problems with this kind of wishful salvation is that it eliminates our truly sinful condition in the eyes of God. It doesn't deal with the fact that humanity is already guilty before God. But rather, guilt is ultimately decided on how good or bad your works have been. For example, let's suppose you intentionally commit murder. It wasn't self-defense. It, it wasn't justified in any way. You, you killed somebody in murder. You were caught. There's no doubt about it. So you stand trial. You stand trial for your crime and you know you're guilty. Everybody else knows you're guilty. You're proven guilty. It's official. You're guilty. Everybody got that? You're guilty? But you get a chance to address the judge and the jury and you do your best to explain to them how I may have committed murder, but you're overlooking all the good things I've done in life. You know, I had no previous criminal record. I've never stolen anything from anyone. I've always obeyed the traffic laws. Uh, I give to charities. I help those in need. And you give this long list of things, good things that you've done in life. 
Does the list of all the good accomplishments in your life change the fact that you're a murderer? No. Does your list of good deeds change the fact that you're guilty? No. You're still guilty of being a murderer. And that's just man's judicial system that we all can understand and we can wrap our head around. But for some reason, when it comes to God and His law, so many believe this idea that at the end of our life, if we somehow have this more good works than this one really bad work, then we're all going to be okay in the end because God's going to smile upon me and we're really good to go in God's eyes. But wait a minute. You've already been proven guilty. And it doesn't change the fact that you're a guilty sinner. And you can't say, well, I've done all this good and therefore God is going to be okay with that. No, no, no. You've got to have that sin addressed. You've got to have that guilt that, uh, that you have been uh, convicted of. And so this mentality on eternal life, it lessens the fact that we are guilty sinners before a just God. And it makes the basis of our guiltiness our works. And nothing in our lost condition will ever change the fact that we're guilty. I said nothing in our lost state will ever change the fact that we're guilty. And just like it only takes one incident of thievery to be a thief, it only takes one sin to be a sinner. No amount of pleading our case and telling God how much good we have done in this life is going to erase the guiltiness of our sinfulness. In our lost state, we have the sentence of the wrath of God abiding on us because we are guilty sinners. And I'm trying to show you how eternal life is not determined by a scale where you hope the good will outweigh the bad. Having eternal life isn't a matter of good works. And listen, we all should be happy about that because there ain't none of us good enough. This is what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible says, therefore, by grace are you saved. In Romans eleven six, 6, it says, And if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 say, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He has shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope or the confidence of eternal life. When people make works the basis of eternal life, then they eliminate grace and they eliminate Christ's work of redemption and why He came to die in our place. And this is why when we're witnessing to people and we're trying to tell them about Christ, we need to emphasize that Christ not only came to bring salvation, but Christ came to die in taking our place. That that should have been us who was dying. Amen. That He came to die for us. We were the guilty, but He who knew no sin became sin for us. It truly was His life for mine. With that in mind, we can understand why Christ came. Because if it was all about how our works can outweigh our bad works after this physical life was over, then there really was no need for Christ to be our sacrifice. What was the point? But He did die in our place. Because we are guilty, hell-deserving sinners. And no amount of trying to convince God on how we think our good works should overrule His justice will ever change the fact that we're guilty. There's only one way to have your sinfulness removed. There's only one way to have your guiltiness removed. 
There's only one way to have the guilty sentence that's upon you removed. And the only way is through the precious blood of Christ. Only His blood can wash away your sins. Only His blood can remove your guilt and shame. That's why He died for us. That's why He took our place upon Calvary. That's why He shed His blood. Eternal life or salvation is not based upon our works or our worthiness. We're told in John 17.3 that eternal life is knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent on our behalf. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot trade for it. You cannot be baptized for it. You cannot join the church for it. But it is only offered as a free gift to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, to know God and to know Christ is to have eternal life. 1 John 1, 1 and 2 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, And our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it. And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. In 1 John 5 verses 11 and 12. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And then later on, 1 John 5 and verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. No other writer writes about eternal life with this kind of way than John did. He says, this is eternal life. That you may know God. So what's eternal life? It is God. The only way to have eternal life is to have a relationship with God. Notice that this eternal life is something which we can possess now, which really further nullifies the idea that we have to wait for this great balancing act to see. It's something we can possess now. Since eternal life is knowing God, we have salvation at the moment that we enter into a relationship with God. If you don't know Him, if you don't have a relationship with Him, you do not have eternal life. You do not have salvation. Let me ask you this way. Does God know you? You may say you know Christ, but does Christ know you? You can know what the Bible says about Him and not really know Him. You can believe in a historical person named Jesus, but not know God. It takes both parties involved to acknowledge they know each other for there to be a relationship. You ever met somebody who had hung around somebody famous and they tried to tell you they know him? But if you could ask that person, hey, do you know so-and-so? They'd be like, who? Now, Tom Furs is a rock star out there on the road, brother. I mean, everybody knows Tom Furs. And so if I want to get in, I just say, hey, I know Tom Furs. And they may say, well, does he know you? You see, it takes both parties involved. Do, do both people know each other? Um, you may say you know someone because you've been around them once. But what would they say if someone were to ask them? Just because you've been around God and His Word and His people doesn't mean you know God. You can claim that all you want. But what would God say if we could call Him right now and ask Him? 
And listen, you don't need to under, uh, you need to understand this. I mean, this is the bottom line. In all of this, the bottom line is, does God know you? Let me give you some Bible on this. In Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23, many will say to me that in that day, speaking of the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The day will come when many will stand before God in judgment. And they're going to, according to the Bible, they're going to cite their good works. Have we not done this? Have we not done many wonderful works? And they're going to try to use that as the basis of being worthy of eternal life. But having never entered into a relationship with Him, Jesus will say, your works are iniquity to me. I never knew you. So the greatest question isn't whether or not you'll be in heaven when you die. But the greatest question is whether or not you know God and does God know you? How would you honestly answer that question today? If you don't know Him, you can know Him today. In fact, there's only one time in the Bible where we are told we can be saved. The Bible says that time is now. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The Bible never says tomorrow is the day of salvation. The Bible never says next hour is the day of salvation. Now let me give you quickly here part two of this message. This verse not only defines eternal life, and that is a relationship with God through Christ, but it defines what true Christianity is. And that is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They're both the same. Both are knowing God. I have frequently observed in churches of our stripe that many people have this idea that somehow true Christianity is following a checklist of do's and don'ts. If I can just follow this checklist, then I'm going to have this wonderful relationship with God. I see this a lot with younger Christians because usually by the time they get older, they've gotten burned out on the whole thing. And they've got this idea, if I can just get this down, I'm going to have a great relationship with the Lord. The problem with checklist Christianity is the list is often unattainable to begin with. But for those, let's suppose, who do actually attain their Christian checklist, they find out that their relationship with God really isn't any better than when they started that checklist. And what happens is people start to become frustrated in their Christianity over time because they are unable to become the best checklist Christian they can be. They never fulfill the checklist. And what happens over time is the Christian life just becomes a set of rules of do's and don'ts. And this is dangerous because of how the devil will come along and try to convince you of how unrealistic God is being and wanting you to live your life. I want to give you an example. Me and Ken were talking about this after men's prayer breakfast yesterday morning. How Satan is an expert at showing you the one thing you can't do. When Satan tempted Eve, he didn't focus on all that her and Adam were allowed to do. But he started his emphasis on what God said they could not do. The Bible says in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God says, look, you can, I'm giving you all this liberty to eat of every tree you want. Except for this one tree. Christ gives us freedom. Gives us liberty. And God says, I'm going to allow you to eat of every tree except this one. 
But listen to what Satan says when he shows up in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now God said, look, you can eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan shows up, and he approached their freedoms given by God as a negative, saying, uh, but you can't eat of all of them. But wait a minute, what did God say? You can eat of all of them you want except this one. But do you see how Satan comes in and he tries to convince you how mean and, and how, how God treats you because you can't have this one? Is everybody with me? And what happens today in checklist approach is the enemy will whisper in your ear about how God never lets you do anything you want to do. And sadly, many of these will eventually drop out. And what's the problem? The problem is Christianity became a checklist of do's and don'ts. It never really was about a relationship with God. It never really was about walking with God and talking to God and listening to God. And a big problem with the checklist approach is we convince ourselves how God can never use me. Because I'm never good enough. I'll never be worthy enough. I've got this problem in my life and God can't use me. Because we're following this idea of what man somewhere down the line has told you Christianity is. That you've got to wear this and do that and look this way and you've got to tie your knot in a double Windsor and you've got to do all these things. And we start to get this idea that what Christianity is, is me following these rules. Then all of a sudden, I'm going to have this great relationship with God. But it never works out that way. And so as you fail in those things, and I was giving you silly examples, but as you fail in those things, you begin to realize, I'm not living up to the checklist. Well, wait a minute. Who gave you the checklist? Was it your preacher? Or was it the Bible? And so it becomes this idea of God can't use me. We lose sight of who we are in Christ and what our standing before God is. And we become this failure mentality. Don't worry, I'm not preaching prosperity, amen. I'm not going to start blinking real fast. And, uh, sorry, that's a Joel Osteen joke. Anyway, in Romans 7, we find Paul's confession about his fleshly struggles where he says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. And he concludes it this way, Oh, wretched man that I am. And Paul's looking at that going, man, I just can't seem to get it right. I'm wretched. And he could have easily said, man, God can't use me. But you know what he says right after that? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, he goes back to his position with God through Christ. And then he writes, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Satan wants you hung up on that one thing. If you could just get this one thing fixed, then you would be a useful and worthy Christian. If you could just get this one thing fixed, then God could use your life. Then God would love you. Then you could know God better. But how many are sitting on the sidelines today because they had something they focused on more than they did in simply having a relationship with God? Amen. And please understand, I'm in no way trying to downplay the need for holiness and righteousness in our lives. But we have to learn that that holiness and that righteousness doesn't come through our man-made checklist. It comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. 
And I want to tell you that when you focus on the relationship instead of the checklist, you'll look back in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and you'll stop being hung up on the checklist. And what will naturally happen one day is you'll look back over your life and you'll realize that you've naturally been doing those things which please God because you love Him. And you chose to have a close relationship with Him. And it stopped being about following your checklist because He's this mean God that you have to appease to keep Him off of your back. When I was living at home, my dad's rules were to me like a checklist I had to follow. And guess what happened? I rebelled against those rules. Because dad never lets me do anything. Anybody else raised that way? I know, dad won't let me do anything. I'll go in the military. Well, they'll let me do anything I want to do. It became a bunch of do's and don'ts. How do I appease dad just to keep him off my back? And I became more focused on the rules than I did my relationship with my father. As a result, there wasn't always this close relationship on my part. Dad loved me the same. But my judgment of my dad was clouded because of what I wasn't allowed to do. By the way, I had a lot of freedoms growing up. Had a lot of liberties. But I chose to focus on the few things that dad wouldn't let me do. But when I started to understand what our relationship really was, I began to realize that dad was not this mean rule maker. And I started to develop a deeper relationship with my dad. And all of a sudden, the rebellion subsided. It didn't go all the way away, okay? But it changed. And guess what happened at that point? I naturally started to do those things which pleased my dad because of the relationship I had with him. I now had a deeper love for him. His love for me was always the same. And I began to understand that Dad just wanted me to have a close relationship with him and to be blessed in this life. And trust me, if I didn't obey Dad, I wasn't blessed in this life. And you see, this is how God is. He's not this mean God who wants your relationship with Him to be all about your checklist that you've developed in hopes of keeping Him happy. But God just wants your fellowship. God just wants to walk with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to listen to you. He wants you to listen to Him. This is true Christianity. It's knowing God. So do you know God? And does God know you? This is life eternal according to the Bible. If you don't know God, I'd be honored if you'd allow me to show you from the Bible how you can know Him. Let me ask you this morning, are you living the true Christian life? Or are you hung up on your little set of rules? Are you living the true Christian life? It's not about some checklist you're never going to be able to completely live up to to begin with. But the true Christian life is all about your relationship with God. You see, people, people get this attitude that if I can just 
read this much of the Bible a day, if I can just spend this much in prayer today, if I can just wear this just right, if I can just do these things and, and maybe work on my language and then watch what I'm, I'm watching. If I can do all these things, I'm going to have this great relationship with God. But I want to tell you, unless you're fostering a relationship with God in the process, all you're going to do is bring your flesh under control and you're never going to have that intimacy with God. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Because it's much more than you having the strength to bring your, your flesh under control. Now, I applaud that, and thank God you're able to do that, if that's you. But so what? You, you read your three chapters today, and you checked off your box. Did you hear anything from God when you were reading it? I mean, in your prayer life, did you wait till you got the answer? Listen, I'm just saying, we get a backwards view of our relationship with God sometimes. And God just becomes this meanie. Well, God's after me. If God was after you, He sure wouldn't have sent Christ to bleed and die for you. He's after you because He wants you to be saved and have a relationship with Him. True Christianity. Just do business with God. If you aren't saved, what are you waiting for? And if you've been living a shallow brand of Christianity, which is dictated by your ability to check the box, why don't you just deepen your relationship with God today? Walk with Him like never before. Listen, we, we need to live pure lives. We do. We need to abstain from sin. It does affect our relationship. I understand all that. And I'm not downplaying that. I'm just simply saying, just walk with God. Walk with God. Have a relationship with Him. You know, when, if, if my wife and I ever were to have an argument... Uh, I read in a book that happens sometimes. Uh, I've never experienced it, and, um, unless it was my fault. <laughs> Amen. 24 years this month. Amen. I sure am glad I didn't throw in the towel every time there was a little bump in the road. But see, sometimes that's how people are with God, and they go, you know what, this relationship just isn't working for me. Whoa, 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 whoa. What was the covenant you entered into? You see... We just get a wrong view. And I just want to encourage you today, just develop a friendship and relationship with God. And I promise you, if you'll do that, those things which are haunting you on your checklist, you'll start to see a difference. You will. Listen, you just might as well come to terms. We're never going to reach sinless perfection. Not this side of eternity. But we sure can live closer to God than we are now. Let's pray.